0: This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all electronic self driving cars. Visit them online at GetCruise.com
1: expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
2: Good afternoon. My name is Katie Frederick, and I would like to welcome everyone to the Sharing with Seeing Eye session this afternoon, and we will get started here with the program. Before we do that, I want to give out the opening CEU code for this session before we get into the presentation. So the opening CEU code is 12022. So again, that opening CEU code is 12022. And with that out of the way, I would like to welcome... Chelsea White from the Seeing Eye. And Chelsea, I will hand it off to you.
3: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at, everybody. Um, I am Chelsea White. I am an outreach specialist for the Seeing Eye. And um, we will be joined here shortly uh, by Dave Johnson, um, our director of training. He's here. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's Dave. There's Dave. Um, uh, I will I will let Dave introduce himself.
1: Oh, I think you just did. Hi, I'm Dave Johnson. I'm Director of Instruction and Training, and I'll let Chelsea continue and take the reins when she's done. How's that?
3: Fantastic. Thanks, Dave. Um, so I just, uh, I, I was looking at the attendee list and, and I see some familiar names and some not familiar names. So uh, I wanted to share... A little bit of information um just kind of about the seeing eye uh for those of you who might be on the uh the the call the webinar whatever we're calling these things these days who who may not have much information about seeing eye or bed dogs in general um so we are um we are one of the guide dog schools um so we do the whole process we breed raise and train the dogs and then we train the individual with a dog and then we support you as the graduate throughout the working career um, of your dogs of your dog's career so we do the whole process um, we are located in Morristown New Jersey um, so we're not too terribly far from New York City um, we have been around now since nineteen twenty nine so we've been doing this for A little while. Like I said before, we do the whole process. So um, we breed all of our own dogs. We use German Shepherds, Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and then we cross the lab with the Golden. Um, A lot of people ask me, you know, how come you don't take, you know, dogs from shelters or or things like that? Because there's all kinds of dogs out there who you know, are looking for homes and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the reason that we don't do that is because we need a very specific type of dog. And so we breed all of our own dogs because we breed for the work. Um, you know, we we breed our dogs to be guide dogs. And we also breed for health. Some of you may have heard of hip dysplasia. Um, it's, it's a condition in... You see it quite often or you'll hear about it quite often in German shepherds, um, but it really shows up quite often in larger breed dogs. So even your labs and your goldens uh, and it's genetic, it's inherited and it's basically uh, the hip joint and, and socket stuff don't fit together like they're supposed to. And so it creates arthritis, which then creates pain and, and all of that kind of stuff and eventually will cause the dog to go lame over time. And that's not, you know, something you want in a guide dog. And so because we breed all of our own dogs, we, we just don't, we don't see it. Um, we have bred it out of our dogs. So, so we breed for health. Um, and that's kind of one example of it is the hip dysplasia. Um, we also breed for temperament. Um, you know, we need a good steady dog, um, you know, very even tempered dog, a dog who's, um, you know not afraid of things but also is friendly enough that you know they can be in the public and and you know not barking or growling and and that at people or other dogs and and things like that so um we do all of our own so after a puppy uh is uh born about 7 weeks between 7 and 8 weeks old they go to puppy raisers puppy raisers are families um, throughout, um, we utilize people uh, throughout New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, um, and, and, a, and a bit into Delaware. Um, and their job is they get the lovely job of housebreaking, um, teaching a dog house manners, so not jumping on counters and getting food, um, not chewing up your shoes, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And then also basic obedience commands, you know, sit down, that kind of thing. And then they're also responsible for socialization. So taking the dog out into the world and and getting the dog comfortable with seeing people and being on buses and behaving in a restaurant. So lying quiet underneath your chair or underneath a table. And, you know, not over at the table next to you, you know, begging for food or, you know, things like that. Um, Get them used to basically seeing and being in the world and being comfortable with it. When the dog is 14 months or so 14, 16 months old, uh, they come back to us. And um, that's when they're evaluated um, for their health. When we run a couple of hip tests and a couple of eye tests and that kind of thing, just to make sure the dog is as healthy as they can possibly be. And, um, and then that's when, and they would then go into training to become a guide dog. And so they are assigned to an instructor and for the next four months, that instructor is going to teach the dog their guide work. And that's when, so they're going to learn um, to pull in harness. Um, so they're going to be introduced to the harness and, and, be taught to pull. And they're going to learn the directional commands of left, right, and forward, um, because that's how you direct the dog. They are going to learn to stop at elevation changes. So the tops and the bottoms, of flights of stairs, and the down and the up curb or down and up ramp of a street. They're going to also be taught to avoid obstacles. So to take you around that stuff, right? That stuff out there that you could trip over, knock over, bump into, they're taught to, to not only, you know, get them around it, but to take you around it in a way that would get you around it safely. So, you know, the garbage cans, the light poles, the, the people, the tables, the chairs, whatever, whatever is, you know, out there that, that could be a potential, you know, tripping hazard type of, type of stuff. They're also taught what we call intelligent disobedience. Um, intelligent disobedience basically says, if you were to give your dog a directional command uh, forward, left, or right, if that particular situation that you would be going into is, is not safe, the dog is going to refuse the command and not, and not move. Okay. So an example of that would be, say you are, you're on a, a light rail or subway or, or, train of some sort, and you get off at your stop. And, you know, it's, it's really busy and there's a whole bunch of people and, you know, you get a little turned around. And so you think that the way up the platform and out of the station is directly, you know, is, is forward. When in reality, if you were to go forward, you would be off the other side of the train platform. Okay. And typically that's, you know, that's a pretty good drop typically. And so, okay, you get off the train, tell your dog forward. And because your dog has been trained um, to not, you know, step off of, you know, three foot drops, your dog would refuse that command of forward. And either one of two things, actually, either not move, or it might actually pull you off to the left or to the right, which is basically your indication, your, it's your dog's way of telling you, hey, forward is, is not where you think it is to, to get out of the train station. We need to go to the right. Okay. Um, so that, that is intelligent disobedience. Um, and that's basically what a dog is trained to do. Um, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's really, I don't want to say basic cause that's not right, but, but that's pretty much what they are trained to do. Um, they are not, not GPSs. I can't say I'm a guide dog user myself. Uh, I cannot tell my dog, uh, dog, take me to Starbucks and magically appear at Starbucks. Okay. To be eligible for a guide dog, um, to be successful with a guide dog, you have to have good orientation and mobility skills. So you need to know where that Starbucks is, where the grocery store is, where the places that you want to go are. And then to be able to direct your dog with the left, right and forward to get to the places that you need to go. And then also, you know, if you're in an unfamiliar environment, um, you need to have the skills to be able to, you know, solicit information um, in any way that, you know, works for you, whether that's asking the public for, you know, information or using a GPS or um, whatever, you know, you use to help orientate to a new environment. So that kind of brings us into um, what we're looking for in somebody uh, who is thinking about a, a, a dog. Again, I will say good orientation and mobility skills because mm-hmm. the dog is not a GPS. Somebody who uh, is pretty active, right? Going to have use for a dog. So, you know, if you're the type of person that, you know, has places to go and things to do and people to see, then a dog is, you know, could potentially be a possibility. If, you know, you really don't go anywhere, um, especially on a regular basis, you know, a dog may not be the best choice um, because they need to work. They need not only to work to burn off energy because they're young dogs when you first get them, but they need to keep up their skills. And, you know, they're kind of like us, you know, you teach them a skill. And if they don't use that skill, they're going to lose it. So, so you need to you know to work them on a regular basis to keep up those skills. What we typically say is about a mile's worth of work most days a week. Now the mile doesn't have to be all at once, but but about a mile's worth of work a day. So you know, you maybe walk you know six, eight blocks to the bus stop in the morning, uh, ride the bus to work, you know, maybe on a nice day, you you know walk somewhere for lunch. Uh, And then, you know, you walk that six, eight blocks, you know, home again at the end of the day, you know, maybe somewhere along the way, you take a trip to the grocery store, you know, whatever, whatever gets you out there going and doing. So that, that is kind of us in a nutshell. We have, you know, several different, uh, a lot of people also ask about sort of our, you know, how long, you know, does training take and all that kind of stuff. For a first-time handler, it is 26 days, so it's almost four weeks. And uh, for a returning student, so somebody who's had a dog from us before, it is a week shorter. So, um, so that is that is that. And I did mention we are in Morristown, New Jersey. So that is pretty much pretty much us. So, I will turn it over to Dave. Um, he's going to talk to you guys about kind of what's been going on lately because COVID has made things
1: very interesting. Interesting is a good way to put it, Chels. Um, (laughs) um, We're pretty proud of what we've been able to accomplish, but I think what I'll do is walk everyone through the uh, process of what's happened uh, during this pandemic with us. And uh, I can take it back to March of 2020 when we had a class in session. And, you know, before that class, our leadership team at the CNI was closely monitoring the world situation and listening to what was going on and the speculation that this virus could become a problem so we started making some plans then probably around the first of the year in uh, in 2020 and when that march class was in session i think i met with them three or four times the last three or four days that they were with us here and uh, to To make changes in our plans every one of those days because the virus was spreading at such a, a quick pace then and um because we serve Canadians as well as Americans we had a concern that the Canadians we had in that class because we didn't know any better at the time we were afraid we wouldn't be able to get them across the border because they were talking about closing borders and of course now that hindsight being 2020 we know that uh that they would have let the Canadians back. They just wouldn't let people come and go freely otherwise. So, But um, we made the decision, I think it was right around St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March, that we got the class out of here. And um, we thought, now it seems like we were naive to think that, ah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks when this blows over. So what we did was we sent non-essential staff home. We stopped training dogs for a couple of weeks, and we... the kennel staff and our breeding station staff remained uh, taking care of animals and our veterinarians and taking care of the dogs and at the time I think we had 203 dogs on campus in our kennels and as those weeks played out um, as you all know things got worse and we decided it was going to be too long to maintain dogs and not be working them safely um too long to maintain them in a kennel situation, so we reached out to our puppy raisers, volunteers, and staff, and we rehomed every dog that was on campus. We got them off the property and into homes, where they remained until July. So, during the so we had a hiatus here. Um, admissions kept rolling. the The admissions department worked from home, processing applications. Managers, training managers maintained our phone support so that we could help people. But, you know, truth be known that people weren't going out because of the lockdowns and there was a a lot less phone activity and there remains. So today, I don't think as many people are getting out. We're just seeing a little uptick in it now. But um, advocacy remained working with people who were having um, issues with access and, and so on and, and monitoring government things. So we kept all the programmatic stuff going and the CI's leadership team worked throughout the entire hiatus. I I, I can't call it a shutdown because we never shut down completely. We kept the, the wheels in motion and kept caring for dogs at the breeding station and so on. But by the end of May, maybe it was May or so, we were making strong plans to return to service and, and try and have start trading people and uh, I don't think uh, you can't understate the fact that you know none of us have ever gone through anything like this before and there was no expert who could tell us what exactly to do. And and trust me, we were leaning on the state officials, the local health officials, and the, uh, the CDC guidelines and so on. And certainly anybody who listens to the news knows that the CDC and Dr. Fauci all changed their tunes as things marched along. First, it was no mask, then mask, then double mask. And you learn these things as things change. So We adapted our plans based on what was happening at the time, and we started bringing dogs back. Um, Our puppy development folks were still out in the field, you know, working with the families who were fostering the puppies and, and the adult dogs that we had with them. And we started uh, shuttling instructors came back to work. I think it was July 6th last summer, so just about a year ago, and started shuttling dogs back to campus. And our goal was to bring them in in small enough lots that our veterinarians could do medical exams on all of them as they came in. Even though they were only off campus five or six months, we still wanted to know everything we could about them when they came back and maintain their health information. So the dogs came back gradually and the intent, Uh, was to bring back, the first group back was going to be the first group of dogs that would be ready for class, which was the August class last year. And rather than our normal four to one ratio, four students to one instructor, we knew we couldn't have that many people in house. So we lowered the ratio to two to one. And I think we had 10 in the first class, five instructors and 10 students. And at that time, uh, we were taking local students because everything changed, as, as and everyone might recall. You could go to this state, but not that state. You know, don't step on your mother's back. Uh, you know, you'll break your mother's back if you do this. And all kinds of things were going on. So. We were serving local folks and people who, within a driving distance, requiring quarantine in home before folks came to us. And things started changing, I guess, when we started seeing vaccine roll out. And so we marched through and we listened to the health reports and to the experts. And there was a very strong sentiment that there was going to be another viral surge after the holidays because of the people that chose to gather with family and friends over the holidays. So we opted in that case to not have a class in January, keep the place quiet and keep people at home quarantining before they came to us in February so that we wouldn't be part of that blossoming effect of virus. And it, it worked in our favor. I can honestly say we've had no cases of a virus on campus whatsoever. We expect by the end of this fiscal year, our fiscal year runs from October 1st till the end of September, and we expect to have served 143 folks in the program in, in its entirety. That's about 100, a little more, a little less than 100 than we would normally, or a little more than 100, than we would normally serve here on campus. And we have cer- certainly served more since being back in service. There's probably another 20 some that we served before we f- we flipped into the fiscal years. With With the advent of vaccine, I can tell you that 90% of our staff or better is vaccinated. And the folks who aren't have you know, have their reasons for health reasons that they're not vaccinated and so on, just as as our constituents might have the same case. But I mentioned that we were taking people who could drive locally and quarantine. And once we started to exhaust that list, and I think that was this spring, we opted to start quarantining at our expense, quarantining students before class in a local Morristown hotel. And I think we've had as many as 10 I could be wrong, it might be less, but I thought it was up to 10 in the hotel at once for 14 days prior to class. People who are vaccinated don't have to quarantine any longer, but the quarantine's going to exist for anybody who does not get vaccinated. We budgeted for a normal year of service for this year because I thought, for heaven's sakes, I should budget for 250 people or more like normal should the virus get better. And we don't know that we didn't know what was going to happen. And then we'd be able to bump up service and and bring people in. So I'm doing the same thing for fiscal year 2022, which starts October 1st. I would like to think we're, we're talking about right now that towards the end of the summer, the class that comes in the end of August, that we would maybe bump the ratio up to three to one so that we could get more students in. What we've had to avoid doing is we're still masked on campus. And I, I really can't, you know, if you were to ask me what's going to happen, I, I would have to, uh, it, with, with regard to a lot of things, I would have to say, I have to tell you when things change that they're changing. Um, because I, I can't crystal ball things any better than anybody else. But New Jersey has dropped its mask mandate. Um, we, however, as a residential facility, are asked to continue masking. So up to this point, we're still temperature checking employees every day and students every day and we're masking indoors. Thank goodness we've been able to to drop masking outdoors so that people can breathe while they're working dogs and so on. This summer's been brutally hot and and it's been, you know, great that we don't have to wear the masks out there. But what our schools, our governor has allowed us to return to normal school um in New Jersey as of September, and I'd like to sort of use that as a guideline for our situation as well, other than the fact that we are residential. But with the government calling that mandate for schools for all kids to go back in September, I'm thinking that that, that those are the times when we can start adding people to class and maybe Getting staff back dining in the dining room with students the way we normally do um, up till this point we've all been eating bag lunches in our office and and the class instructors and the class the students in class are the only ones in the dining room and it's a really lonely for us class us, us staff members we really miss being with with our constituency when they're here and and frankly, um, I was doing exit interviews with the class that just left this week. The new students left yesterday. And I asked them while we were here, I was like, can you just lower your mask so I can see your face and, you know, know who you are uh, without the mask? Because it's so hard to identify people without the mask. Um, it's just been such a strange, strange thing. So um, as we go forward, I, I'm not sure how long the CNI is going to be able to sustain footing the bill for quarantine. We've we've talked about it um, beginning but what I did this year um, was because we have been so unable to travel because of the situation that I had money set aside to travel students here and for my instructors to travel to visit folks in the field. And I flipped the money from one thing to another to sustain, you know, to pay for the, the uh, quarantining in the hotel. And that over time, that's a lot of money. And we may just have to stop that. We'll see what happens. Um, I I have some concern over the Delta variant, which is springing up. New Jersey's numbers are up to, uh, as of today, I think they are up to what we had in May and they doubled yesterday, the numbers of virus and it's the Delta variant. It's getting unvaccinated people and young people who are not vaccinated. Those seem to be the the key folks who are, are coming down with it. So we have to be concerned with all that. We want to protect our students and residents and our staff while they're here. And we'd certainly like to uh, keep up with our track record of, of not having any cases on campus. We will be having a graduate update call. So any of you who are already grads who might be on the call, you can dial in late in August. We just send, are sending out a reminder now about that. It's going to be a Zoom call. And you can check in and I may have different information by then. Things can change absolutely daily. There's no question about it. Having just had an instructor's meeting this week and told everybody that I thought we were going to start traveling more and that everything was going to be honky dory, which we saw a release that, Hey, maybe last night's news said you, you might need to worry about shutdowns there. I think it was California that was shutting down places. And uh, I, requiring masking completely again because of the Delta variant. So um, it's it's certainly been a life lesson this has. And uh, it's great to be in touch with everybody as things open up and know that life's returning to normal a little bit. And we can only hope that it continues to get better. So there's a lot been going on in the world with advocacy and government relations stuff, um, which is Melissa Allman's specialty, of course. And so, Melissa, I'd love for you to take it from here.
4: OK, sounds great. Um, so as Dave just said, my name is Melissa Allman. For those of you who don't know me, I am the advocacy and government relations specialist at the CNI and I have been working at the CNI for, it was three years in April. I have been a guide dog handler for a little over four years now. I work with Luna, who is a six-year-old yellow lab golden cross, and she has truly changed my life. So that is, that's an amazing, and I, and I, I just want to echo all the things that Chelsea said about guide dog mobility in terms of its value and also the things that you need to consider as you decide whether a guide dog is right for you. I must say that during this time of COVID and times when isolation was something to endure and combat, I can't imagine not having had Luna by my side as as a guide and as a companion and even on the days where I thought, well, I don't really have anywhere to go, I had to come up with something so that she could have work and so that we could keep our our skills sharp, even if it meant navigating some of the crazy, wacky sidewalk dining. That's been that's been a challenge. But um, again, I think that this time of COVID. So, so in terms of advocacy work Dave stated that didn't really stop while uh, while the virus was ticking hold of our world there was still work to be done one of the things that that came up very early on for us was this sort of dealing with fear that people would not be allowed in businesses because um, because of the fact that there was this unknown about whether or not our dogs could transmit COVID and this sort of myth among, you know, among proprietors and business owners and things of that nature. So we had to sort of dispel that myth and make sure that we put up on our website, the CDC guidelines pertaining to service animals so that people would know, you know look, I can still go where I need to go. Nothing has changed. My civil rights have not changed. I still have that right to to go out and do what I would normally do because people are not going to get COVID from my dog's presence. So that was something that was important to kind of reassure people about. One of the things that I think you all know that has emerged and been just something to really contend with and deal with during the past year or so is this Department of Transportation regulation on traveling by air with service animals. I won't belabor the details of that because I recognize that some or many of you who may have attended the panel discussion right before this one led by Guide Dogs for the Blind and with some very impressive panelists discussing these new regulations. But what I can say about them is that at around the time of the shutdown, the world kind of shutting down the seeing eye, doing its best to to remain as as vibrant and functioning as we could during that time, Uh, although it felt like the world was shutting down. But during that time, the Department of Transportation was gathering comments on its proposed regulations from the public so that it could then use those comments to sort of change and modify the regulations that they were going to put forth and adopt in the coming months. So in January of this year, the Department of Transportation finally released its 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 regulations and, and adopted them, and they became a final rule. And as you know, one of the things that we're really contending with is this service animal air transportation form that we all have to complete now when we fly. So that has been a challenge for guide dog handlers in particular because one of the issues is the accessibility of the forms, which are technically, and I want to emphasize that word, uh, technically accessible according to the web content accessibility guidelines, at least on the Department of Transportation's website, but it meets those basic standards. But if you don't have Adobe, or you're not tech savvy, and you're struggling with that form, it can become very anxiety producing and for any of us having to deal with it. And one of the things that we were dealing with is the airlines were not making the form accessible as they were required to do all the time, according to the new regulations. So I have had the privilege of being part of the Assistance Dogs International Legislative and Advocacy Committee. And we've been working very closely with the individual airlines and with A4A to really help the airlines understand what they can do to make this process as easy as possible for guide dog handlers. Because the airlines were also just given these regulations and had to sort of contend with what the department put in place. So we've also been in close communication with the Department of Transportation about issues that we are seeing with the airlines, such as the lack of accessible forms. And then when people need reasonable accommodations and assistance filling out the forms, the airlines are actually required to provide that assistance, and sometimes they don't want to. So that is something that we have been in ongoing discussions with both the Department of Transportation and airlines about. One of the exciting projects that I won't go into too much more detail about that we embarked on with Guide Dogs for the Blind, because this is going to be discussed more at a later point in another panel, so you guys have a teaser there, is the release of a video For airport personnel and other airport individuals in the airport, such as TSA, about the appropriate etiquette for engaging with travelers who are blind or have low vision during the air travel process. So, that I will say no more about because it's going to be announced at another panel jointly by the two schools. And I know a lot of you have already had the opportunity to watch it, but that was a really important project that we were working on because we knew that air travel was going to be ramping up. So those are some advocacy efforts that have been going on. Another side of this is the ongoing work that we do concerning interference with guide dogs, whether that be benign interference from the public or from dogs, or whether it's aggressive interference that rises to the level of a dog attack. I think many of you are aware of the survey that the Seeing Eye, thanks to Ginger Kutch and the efforts of others in 2011, conducted concerning dog attacks. And so those survey results were very, very important as a baseline study in terms of showing us that the majority of guide dog handlers that were surveyed experience some type of aggressive interference and almost half surveyed had experienced some sort of an attack. So in October of 2019, well, actually, I mean, the work on it was going on a long time before that. But we launched at that point a survey specifically of seeing eye graduates. We we wanted to just make sure that we were clear on who was taking the survey and that we could work to improve our program to provide the best training and assistance and advocacy possible to those who took the survey. So we discovered from having conducted a survey about guide dog interference interference with the work of guide dogs in general, that interference is still a very huge problem. It's a problem in terms of interference from people. It's a problem in terms of interference from other dogs, be it aggressive or not. So one of the things that we're doing, we're working on as a result of that survey is getting funding and making plans to conduct an education campaign very specifically targeted at law enforcement. So that's one of the things that is in the planning stages and fundraising grant writing stages, because one of the things that we are learning, at least in New Jersey, and we're hearing anecdotally from from people in other states, is that unfortunately, sometimes Many times law enforcement are not receiving adequate training or just simply do not know that there are state guide dog protection laws in place or service animal protection laws, depending on how they're framed in each state, that are there to provide us with rights and remedies so that if our dogs do experience, we do experience working with our dogs interference or they are attacked, we do have some recourse. But it doesn't work, and those laws don't do anything, even the really good laws that we have in New Jersey, if law enforcement is simply unaware of them. So, that is a project that is underway. Another thing that we're working on, and we're exploring sort of funding opportunities for this as well, is the creation of an app that will provide guide dog handlers with information not only concerning interference and, and what the laws are in their state, updated information about that, but also resources and laws and materials concerning public access related issues, air travel, um, some, some educational materials that they can use to help educate others. We have this information on our website. We know that there are other great apps out there that do some of this, but we have a vision for this that we're pretty excited about that we think will be a nice additional resource so that when guide dog handlers, both Seeing Eye and other graduates of other schools are out on the go, they can easily access this information. If you happen to be in a state where, for example, as in many states, it's a crime to deny someone access or a criminal offense of some sort to deny someone access to a public place you can very quickly determine without having to go through a lot of information if your state happens to be one of those and and who you might contact. So these are things that we're exploring and we're working on behind the scenes and trying to get some funding for and we're very optimistic about that. One thing I will say that we've also had the opportunity to do, you know, one, one of the things that's great about Zoom is you can still conduct training and webinars and outreach events. So one of the things that we have done for the past couple of years and we continue to do earlier this year was a seminar for attorneys, at least in the state of New Jersey, who were looking for continuing legal education concerning service animal related issues. So the seeing was able to spearhead and, and participate largely in, in that seminar. We had some panelists from other sort of service animal perspectives, but really the impetus for it was having something like this hosted at the Seeing Eye. So we, have, we continued with that effort, even though we were dealing with a pandemic. And Dave and I have had the opportunity recently to give a presentation and a training to some to an EMS squad that was local, and we're going to be doing more of that work concerning the rights and responsibilities pertaining to guide dog handlers in, in, in sort of emergency situations when first responders are. That's some of what I've been working on with the wonderful support of others who work at the CNI. These are not efforts that could be made without the support of our graduates and of our staff. So I will turn it back over to you, Dave. I don't know if there's anything else that I missed there that you wanted to talk about.
1: Thank you. Nailed quite a bit, Melissa. Uh, if we could take questions from folks, I think that would be the next best thing. Um, Jim Kessler was going <coughs> to join us, but he has gotten called away today, I think, um, I've seen him in and out, but um, he was going to join us also, but I don't think he can. So uh, with that said, I think we could take questions if if there was a way to do that.
3: Um, so, Dave, I had asked folks to email questions um, prior to um, our presentation.
1: Oh, cool. So you're going to answer I, them all?
3: I, sure. Yeah. <laughs> The answer to everybody's question is no, no. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I, but I will um, go through those first, just to make sure that those folks that, that did email their questions and can get, can get. How stuff many you. do you have? I have three of them. Okay. So the first one comes from Eva. She uh, asks um, basically uh, what, what about somebody who's working from home? Um, she lost her last dog about a year ago. And um, she is now working from home, so not traveling quite a bit or traveling nearly as much logistically, I guess, kind of looking for thoughts on, you know, whether she should pursue another dog or
1: not. Oh, I, I would be honest and say. Um, if if people have questions about their individual dog or their own circumstances, they should reach out to us so that we can have a private conversation. I really don't, but I I would say, you know, we know a lot of people are in a different situation now than they were a year and a half or two years ago. And we're trying to accommodate everybody and, and get things done. We know that the dogs aren't getting worked as much and that people's circumstances are changing such that they might not be working them to a job. They might be telecommuting and so on. But that doesn't mean that they still don't have a need for a guide. So it's probably best to be a private conversation with admissions or training as to what we need to do for each individual. Is that fair? I'll answer it. That, that, that sounds completely fair. So okay.
3: um, The next question comes from Melody and she asks, if we accept folks with other disabilities in conjunction with blindness, and then she lists sort of hearing loss and, and several um, various other disabilities. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: without getting deep into that, I would say she should reach out to us and we can have a conversation because yes, we do. Yep. So
3: that, that would be my my answer as well. Um, yeah. you know, we evaluate on an individual basis.
1: Personal basis. Um, yep. Yeah,
3: there is, there is no, you know, we have no, you have to have this, or you have to have that because we all, we all know that everybody's different. So, and then, um, her, she had one other question and it was, um, do we dual train, uh, dual disability train dogs? So example is a dog, not only for a guide dog, but maybe a hearing dog as well.
1: We do not do that. We have not done that. Just guiding.
3: And I, I am not aware of a school that
1: does. Am I, am I
3: correct in that?
1: No, I mean, I I had a background in, in hearing dog training in college before I, Mm -hmm. well, at the same time I was doing intern stuff here. I was doing stuff with a program in college and the, the hearing and the guiding conflicts each other in, in, in my estimation in some ways, um, and might lead to an unsafe guide that had to react to a sound depending upon what it was. So my answer to that was, you know, that, that involves personal conversations again, I think. And I could, I could definitely recommend great hearing dog programs too. You know, it depends on, you know, which needs the most, I guess, but I don't know that there's any dogs dual trained for hearing and, And guiding. I could be completely wrong, but I I don't know that is true. I do know um, that we are, I think, the only game in town right now that's doing any kind of training for folks in wheelchairs. I don't think anybody else is doing that work now, but I could be wrong.
3: And then the last question I had that came in email wise is from Richard, and he is asking for um, more information about the Home and Away program and the qualifications for somebody to To be able to do that program, do they have to have sort of a need for that particular program, or could it be something that that a person could do um, just because maybe they feel that that would be the best option for them?
1: So I guess I guess the answer is it depends. Um, um, and and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to talk around it. We we need to have a this is a personal conversation also, but I will tell you that. Most of the new students that we served early in the pandemic all got home and away training because they were drivable and we took them all home and finished their last week of training at home so that we could leave the building vacant and clean for an entire week between groups. And that worked. So anything other than class training is very manpower intensive and and more expensive um, for us. And so we have to be careful and just not overextend ourselves. What, what almost all home and away training, for those who don't know what that is, it means you start your training here. And the last four or five days of your training are, are done at home. You're here two full weeks, though. And our experience has been when we used to do that for one week. Uh, years ago. And we stopped doing that because there was not enough time here in-house for a bond to happen and to make up for any mistakes that might happen in matching and so on. So it's a full two weeks here and then a finish up at home. It is arguably the best we could possibly offer people. I know that. I I won't lie about that. Start here, finish home, custom training. You know, It's great, but it's a really hard manpower thing. It used to be reserved for retrains um, and, and folks who needed uh, less time here and so on, but I, I wouldn't say that somebody local wouldn't get that or or, you know, so it's it's worth a conversation with us to investigate that and and we could ha- we could talk about that. All
3: right, cool. Um, those are all the questions that I had that came in through email. We do have four hands raised. Pamela,
2: you may ask your question, please.
3: The hand raising was by mistake,
5: so <laughs> I don't have a question, but I do have praises for
2: all the work that everybody is doing at Seeing Eye.
1: Well, thank you. Nice to hear from you too, Pam.
2: Beth, you may ask your question, please. Hey, guys.
5: Thank you so much for a great presentation. I am not speaking specifically about the Seeing Eye here, but I don't know if anybody remembers this. Larry Scootcon, who has since retired from APH, used to do a podcast called Blind Cool Tech, and he would be chatting to us about digital recorders and everything else under the sun and he would be either walking home or to APH with whichever dog he happened to have at the time oh, I
4: remember that. and
5: he did not have to direct that dog at all I sat there and listened absolutely enthralled that do- they were like a well-oiled team and I know that you guys don't train I don't think any school does train dogs to say, so that you could say, hey, let's go to work or, hey, let's go to Starbucks. But I'm telling you, that was fantastic. And I wondered if you'd ever seen, uh, it, you know, had, have you in your experience ever mm-hmm. seen teams like that? Because I will never forget that as long as I live. Thank you.
1: I'm going to guess maybe, that, and I'm putting it out there, that, that Larry was probably praising his dog by touching him for for good work and and directing his dog with hand signals we we do both um in training here and a well-oiled team like that can get ar- away with hand signals i wish larry was on the call to answer that because he's probably chuckling now if he can hear this so that's a good question for him but no we have we don't train that way no uh, and dogs do know where we're going a lot of the time i think melissa you could
4: Oh, yeah. Go, I, I, can, I can walk okay. from my office to, I don't know, some other destination on campus. Or, or let's just say I can go from my apartment building, my apartment that I live in, and maybe we're going to go out to for park time or whatever. And I could probably not say anything until we get to the relieving area, you know, and just give her hand signals and she would just know.
1: Given the time of day, she would know you were going there too. That, exactly. Yeah.
4: yeah, absolutely. And we need to give our dog as much information as possible, I think, to not put pressure on our dogs. But I think we can get away with stuff like that sometimes.
3: Yeah. yeah,
4: dogs. Dogs pattern. Yeah. So,
3: you know, they get to know the places that you go to frequently, like home. So I suspect, you know, Larry's dog probably knew the route from work to home very well and could do it without any sort of, um, input from, you know, from Larry, I am guessing, and, and I, I agree with Dave, you know, that he was probably using hand signal, um, and body position as well. because um, body position is a huge part of that too. If you're yeah. going to tell your dog to go left, it's, it's not only verbally left, but a left hand signal. And, and it's also a, you know, sort of tilt of your, you know, hips and shoulders to the left, just a little bit. So I, I suspect, you know, Larry was, you know, doing his thing verbally, you know, giving his presentations and, but he was still, I'm, um, I'm, I would bet money on it, uh,
1: interacting with his dog for sure. Yeah. He'd have so. to be doing something to get a, a forward motion.
4: Yep. yep. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent with what they're both saying.
1: Yeah. Safely. Yes. Do it
4: safe. <laughs> yes. But it looked cool. <laughs> so that yeah. like Yeah. It sounds like it,
1: yeah, it, sounds like it yep. made a real impression. Yes, absolutely.
2: Dawn, you may ask your question, please.
0: I have three questions, actually. We received an um, um, uh, email from you yesterday in regards to rabies. If you're traveling international, do you know what stemmed the CDC to say, like, if you're going to Africa or Belize or some of these other countries that you mentioned that we have to get Uh, a rabies uh, test before re-entering the United States, especially if our dogs have been keeping up on all their
4: rabies shots?
1: I'm going to let Melissa take this, but I will tell you that it's pretty extensive and and pretty difficult. So go ahead. So
4: if, if you are going somewhere, first of all, you should check first to make sure to see whether or not your country of travel is on that list. And if it's not, then it's not a high-risk country for rabies, and you don't have to worry about this permit. But what's what caused it, you know, we were wondering this at first too, and it's our understanding that people were trying to import dogs from these high-risk rabies countries fraudulently without having legitimate rabies vaccination and titer tests and things of that nature because maybe maybe that there was going to be an issue and so they wanted to get around it so that is our understanding of what prompted this decision okay, for the CDC. Yeah
0: my my family understood Hawaii but Hawaii's is not under, under that because you have to start a year ahead of time with your titer tests but thank you for explaining that. The second question is on the um seminar prior to you, if I understood this correctly, SATS has some kind of um travel form that you only have to fill out once and they give you a number. And when you fly with an airline, you just put that number in and you don't have to fill out the entire form. Do you guys know
4: anything about it? If I Yeah, I can speak to that as well. So s this is this is the deal sats service animal travel solutions is a sort of service that was created by the open doors organization which is an organization out of chicago that works to promote independent and successful travel of people with disabilities all around the world and what what i think what open doors would like to see happen is that All of the airlines would use this service so that when you complete your air transportation, your service animal air transportation form, the information, if you desire it to be, is saved in this this service dog um, solutions database so that when you, you get one of these service animal ID numbers and the next time you fly with that airline and say that you're traveling with the service animal, all you have to do is plug that in and they have all of your information already. Now, the situation as it is in reality is that right now, Alaska Airlines is the only airline that is choosing to use the service that is already doing it. You may have heard Eric Lipp say that there are other airlines that are interested. Some international airlines want to do it. But it is pretty. I think it's pretty clear that right now Alaska is the only one that's actually paying for and using this service. Some airlines find it to be pretty costly. Uh, so, and and I don't obviously know the inner workings of what conversations are going on between Open Doors and some of these airlines about their plans to use the service. American okay. Airlines is also doing something, but they're not using this service where, and Chelsea can speak to this a little bit, where you can get a service animal ID and plug in the information once you've done the form once, but it's only good for either a year or until your rabies vaccination expires, whichever of those two uh, times is less. So for example, if you have a three-year rabies vaccine and you just got it, your dog just got it, that will still expire, and you'll have to do it again. Is that the electronic guide dog for the blind that they? No, talking that's a about? different. That's something different. The digital ID that was being discussed, which would be an ID that we could show instead of having to do the form, is a work in progress. That that okay. is not out there yet. So
0: where do you get this one for the, the digi- digital ray, um, rabies? Do you get that from um, your vet?
4: I don't know what you're asking. I'm sorry. The I don't one know that you
0: were talking about with the rabies that you get on your, you know, that you have on your phone or something like
4: that. No,
0: you what I'm talking saying, about.
4: What I'm saying is that the the service animal air the 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 service animal travel solutions that you were talking about that Alaska uh-huh. Airlines is using, you still have to fill out the air transportation form once. And then once you've completed that form, then you can start using your service animal ID um, for at least for Alaska Airlines. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. No problem.
2: Mary Lee, you can ask your question, please. Hi, Melissa, Chelsea, Hi. Dave.
6: Hi.
0: Hi. Um, my question is,
6: what are your plans? And do you have specific guidelines for dealing with students that are dealing with hearing issues? I know that, you know, hearing loss can be anything from very mild to be severe. And they You're probably going to say it's an individual thing that people will handle individually, but you must have some thought as a school uh, you have in your back pocket.
1: Um, The the true answer is um, we visit folks merrily and, you know, you get a personal visit from us to evaluate the hearing and the safety aspects of it. Most, not all, but most of the people who come to us have sufficient hearing capability that they can judge traffic independently. A big part of our program involves traffic training. We have trained people, um, a small number, but um, we have trained folks who need to solicit assistance in crossing streets. But we don't have a lot who we've, we've served in that case. So yeah, we have a hearing form that we've recently um, put together. We have all kinds of forms that we so that we can get information from people digitally and learn about them before we come visit them, so that we know what you know can give a fair, a fair evaluation for folks. And certainly, um, you know, that's the other thing I didn't mention earlier was that because. We couldn't travel during the pandemic. We were doing interviews of new students via Zoom platform and FaceTime and so on. We've never done such a thing before because we're, we're huge on human touch and um, like to come meet people. We like to teach them things before they come to us. And the Zoom and the, the FaceTime were, were good boo-boo patches for us. And we might still have to use them on occasion, but we really want to return to our practice of seeing people um, in their home environment so that we can really get to know you and assess you um, adequately. That's a big part of our criteria is, you know, and and everybody who goes, goes out and does the assessments is professional. And, you know, we'd, we'd like to, to think that we, we try and uh, do our best to serve the people that we can, so it's all dependent probably on a home visit and and your own assessment of your hearing that helps us.
2: Deb, you may ask your question, please. I
6: just want to say that uh, I think the time and the investment and all the work that's been done in preparation for COVID was well served. I was up there in uh, October, November and Um, I'm having a wonderful time with this dog and I think that the the changes and the the way class was designed all the thought that went into how to make the um, facility safe and effective was well worth it and I'm just
1: congratulations. Hey thanks Deb you. you know I would have loved to have heard personally her personal experience about how returning after class and resuming a working relationship with a new dog was during the the pandemic compared- maybe she
6: can raise her hand hey
1: okay, deb did you hear my question
6: i did and i tell you it was really it went really well um we walked with our instructor who drove us home
1: uh, okay to- got-
6: did what it was like going to the shopping area and that went well and um i, I started going over to the church and she's uh just a, a, a wonderful dog she's unassuming she's quiet she just fits in everywhere And she does well with everything that I expect her to do.
1: But were you able to get out and get enough work, Deb, that you felt you could keep the dog entertained and and focused and and sharp?
6: I did some playing with her at home in the beginning. But once things started to open up, we did better. She was a little rusty. But since I've had a dog so long, we just practiced things and gave her some chances to do things around around the apartment complex before I took her out on the road per se. Okay. And, um, she was just fine. Just, just giving her a little chance to brush up on things and keep the obedience training up and things like that, not letting her get away with anything. And, uh, she, she's just doing great.
1: Great. Well, thanks for coming back and letting me know.
3: Sure. Yay. I just want to say thank you everybody for joining. Feel free, if you have any questions to get in touch with us, you can email admissions at seeingeye.org. You can check our website out, which is www.seingi.org And my email, if you have any questions, is white, so W-H-I-T-E,
4: the letter C for Chelsea, at org. And I just want to say that if you have specific advocacy questions Probably the easiest way to email those is to send an email to advocacy at seeingi.org. But the questions, the information that you asked for about the Department of Transportation form and other things can be found on our website. If you go to slash access, you can find that information there. Or you can just call the seeing eye and say, can I talk to that advocacy lady? I forget what her name is. And Mary Manwaring will put you through to me.
1: It's my sincere hope. While Zoom has been great and has gotten us through a couple summers of hard convention stuff, I I really hope that we're together next summer and can see each other in some unnamed place. As of yet, I guess we don't know where that would be if we do have Omaha. Omaha. (laughs) Omaha. Oh, oh, we do know. Yeah, Uh, Omaha. That would be great because there's nothing like the real thing, seeing folks and seeing you with your dogs. And uh, we miss everybody and we can't wait to be together again. So everybody take care.
4: Definitely. Goodbye, everybody.
2: On on that note, I want to, um, before everyone goes, I want to give out the closing CEU codes for this session. And thanks to the panel for a great presentation. The closing CEU code for this session is 98483. Again, 98483. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye, everyone.